Well, good morning. I'm really excited to be with you guys this morning. For those of you who may not know me, I'm Pastor Nick. I'm the junior high pastor here at NBC. And uh, for the last few weeks, we've been going through this one-word series. And today, uh, if you have your Bible, feel free to open up to Romans 8, verses 18 to 24, because we're going to be parked there for a little while this morning as we look at our one word for this week. Last week, Pastor Errol talked about rest. And I don't know if you were here or not, but for me, that service really wrecked me. Just as I sat there and I I heard what he had to say about um, how we rest in God. And so this series in and of itself has been really impactful and meaningful to me. And so as we go this morning and we look at our one word as we, as we dive into what this means, we're looking at a word this morning uh, many of you might be familiar with. It's called consummation. And it's an interesting word. It's a, a word that uh, for most of us, as we know, as we look back on the beginning of all things, God brought male and female together. He made them one flesh and he said, this is good. But we're going to be talking about more than just that idea of consummation. In fact, we're going to be talking about really a future culmination of all things. We're going to be talking about a future culmination of all things. And to do that, to look at the very end, we have to go back to the beginning. So real quick, I just want to highlight a couple of things. First, in creation, God made everything. Day one, two, three, four, five, six, on the seventh day, he rested. He made all these different things. But there was something special about day six. Something different about day six. Because on day six, he created mankind. God created man in his own image. And you and I, as human beings, are image bearers of God We have something that nothing else on creation has. We are image bearers of God himself, which means we were created to give God glory. We were created to give God glory. That's the purpose he made us for. When he created Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, I want you to work. I want you to multiply. I want you to be in communion and fellowship with me. He created us to give him glory. But we know according to Romans 3.23, that all sinned and fell short of that glory. We fell short of that. And we messed that up. And there in Genesis 3 at the fall, we see that in the pursuit of our own glory, we dismiss God's glorious purpose for us. We chose to believe the, the lie that Satan told in the garden instead of the truth of God's word. And because of that, we fell short of God's glory. We wanted to seek after our own hearts, our own desires, and not what God had planned for us. And that's tough. And it's messed up because we chose, instead of saying, God, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to put my hope in you, I'm going to trust myself and put my hope in who I am because I think I know it better. I think I know it better. And all throughout history, we see that mankind ever since that moment has been trying to make up for that. Mankind has been trying to make up for the fact that they messed it up in the garden. And they've tried to do things their own way to try and reach God. Building a tower up to the heavens. Doing whatever they could to try and get back in communion with God. And God, all throughout history, said, it's not about you and what you're going to do, but it's about me and what I'm going to do for you. So let's take a look at biblical history here for a second. In fact, Right away in Genesis 12, we see God talking to Abraham and he says, I have a future promise and a future people for you. From you, there's going to be a a nation so big and so great and I'm going to bless the world through you and through your nation, this nation of Israel. And ultimately, 
It was Jesus who was the blessing to the world for his death and resurrection. And then in 2 Samuel 7, we see that through the prophet Nathan, God spoke to David and said, I am going to establish a kingdom, a future king who is going to sit on the throne forever. And it's not going to be you, David. It's not even going to be your son, but it's going to be someone in your line down the road and his throne will reign forever. And again, that's Jesus. During the exile, the prophet Jeremiah spoke on behalf of God and said, you know, you people, you're, you're kind of all spread out throughout different parts of the world because of your sin and your disobedience. You feel forgotten, you feel abandoned, but God has a future promised for you. He has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you. He has a future promise for you. He knows the plans he has for you, a plans to prosper, plans for good. The prophet Isaiah spoke about a future justice. In Isaiah 9, he talks about how one day there's going to be one who comes and he's going to dwell among us and the government's going to be on his shoulders and he will administer true and perfect justice. The prophet Zephaniah in chapter 3 talks about a future restoration. That one day all of this, the broken, messed up world that we lived in is going to be restored and brought to completion. And the very purpose of what God did in creation, making all things and saying it is very good, is going to come back to completion, and it'll be restored. Then we jump into the New Testament, and we see that Jesus himself brings us a present hope for a future kingdom. He brings us a present hope for a future kingdom. And why is that? It's because of his death. He lived a life to show us what it meant to live for God, but then his death on the cross was the bridge that brought together mankind and God to say there can be a relationship, it can be restored, not because of any work of any human, but because of what Jesus, the Son of God, did on the cross for you and for me. And he did that. And he didn't just die, but he rose again. And by his, his life being risen from the grave, we have victory in Jesus over sin and death. And that promise of a future is now made full in his death and resurrection. We have a future promised because of what Christ did for us. So, just kind of going over that brief history, now we jump into our verse for this morning. And this is from a guy named Paul. And Paul, before he came to know Jesus, he was the worst of the worst when it came to sinners. I mean, he was totally anti-Christian. He killed Christians. He threw them in jail. He did everything he could to diminish the way of Jesus Christ. And then one day on the road to Damascus, he sees Jesus for himself. And he's blinded. He sees the very glory of God and he is blinded by it. And his life is changed and transformed. And so, as Paul gives his life to Jesus, his mission changes and he goes out through the world and he begins to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And in that, he begins to really take on the sufferings of Jesus and his people. He's someone who is kicked out of towns for preaching the gospel. They even try and stone him to death and he survives. He's shipwrecked and stranded for three or four days on the ocean and he, he is having all these things come up against him and he's dealing with all these sufferings And so he talks in this book to the Romans about what it means to suffer and what it means to hold on to hope. And he says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. He goes on and he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul right here is comparing that this life, the sufferings of this world, and we've seen it, we know this world is broken, we know this world is messed up. We've had broken hearts, broken relationships, broken lives that we have dealt with. And we know that the suffering of this world is difficult, it's hard, it hurts. And Paul is saying, I've been there. But you cannot compare the present suffering that you experience now to the future hope and glory that we'll experience in Jesus Christ. Nothing compares to that. Nothing that you experience in this life compares to the glory and future hope that we have in who Jesus is at the end of all things. And so he points us back and he says basically everything from creation in the beginning, from Genesis all the way through life, even now, our lives, these little hashes on the timeline of who we are and what we know and what we've experienced, all of that is so small compared to where we are headed. And we're headed to eternity, to the glory of God. If we were created for God's glory, then he is going to bring that back to fruition, bringing together God and man, bringing together heaven and earth back into completion so that way we can do what our purpose is and give glory to God. And so, we hope. We hope. We rest in the fact that there is a future. And in this life, we cling to that hope, knowing that God has a purpose and a plan and that his victory is one that we share. And I don't know about you, but it can be really difficult to, to hope for things. We hope that we have a good job. We hope that we'll make enough money. We hope that you know, our families, our marriages, our relationships will be okay. We hope and hope and hope about all these different things. And hope, when things go bad, can be really tough. But when I was in college, I hoped for something and I hoped, just like any good young man, that one day I would get married and I'd have a family and that there'd be a beautiful girl who would fall in love with me. And this hope that I had was really, really weird because I spent six months kind of longing after this girl that I saw by accident. All right, so I, I'm there on like one of the very first days of class and I'm, I'm a few minutes early because I hate being late to things. I'd rather just not show up. So I hate being late, so I'm 15 minutes early to class and my class is gonna start and the class before me with the speech teacher is finishing up and there out of the doorway as people are heading through the halls is this girl and I see her 
And she's wearing like this yellow shirt and this long brown dress. And I I remember just there was something about her. Yeah, she was physically beautiful, but there was something even more about her that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Something about her that just said, wow, she resonates just grace and wonder. And I want to know who she is. And so I did what every good guy would do. And I stood in the corner and hoped that she would notice me. And I, I waited And I stayed there. And I made sure I was early to every class in hopes that I would see her leave class, but mostly like this. And that semester went by, and I never said a word. And then we're in the spring semester, and a few months have gone by, and I haven't seen her because there's no classes I have near her or whatever. And I get a phone call from my friend Caleb, and he's like, hey, uh, I got a friend who's who's coming back from... um, where she lives and she's coming on this train over at Ogilvy Station. You want to come with me and we'll go pick her up. And I was like, sure, why not? I don't know who this is, but that's okay. So we get to Ogilvy Station and if you've ever been there, they have the terminal with like all the restaurants and stuff and there's the train yard and you walk through like the doors and uh, there's, there used to be, I don't know if there still is, there used to be like a phone booth section. You guys know what phone booths are, right? There used to be over in this corner. And so my friend Caleb's like, hey, I got a good idea. She hates to be scared, so why don't, why don't I go hide in the corner? She doesn't know who you are, and you can put on your big, menacing, grizzly bear type of act and kind of walk up and scare her. And I'm like, okay, sure. That makes total sense. So Caleb goes and hides in the corner, and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Before you do that, how am I going to like recognize? I mean, I don't even know who this person is. He goes, oh, you've probably seen her before. She's really small. She's really tiny. And uh, you've, you probably recognize her on campus. So when you think you see her, just, just start walking towards the crowd of people, you know, all big, menacing. Okay, I was like, all right, all right, I can do that. So he goes and he hides. And the train pulls in. And this crowd of people come out of the train yard and into the terminal. And there, between all these taller people, I just see this little bob of like a brown hat, like bouncing up and down. And I said, that's either a kid or this is the person I'm looking for because I don't recognize anybody. And so I do my best big grizzly bear impression and I start walking towards this really tiny, small girl who was the same girl that I saw every day I had this class for six months. And I thought to myself, oh no, this, is, this can't be the way that I introduce myself for the very first time. Hello! And the hope that I had for what maybe could happen was all of a sudden kind of just the air sucked right out of the room. And that night she told me that I was bitter, sarcastic, I would die alone, and I should never have friends. And I, I mean, I can't blame her, right? Here she is, someone who is free-spirited, loves the Lord, dances around barefoot with paint because she's an artist and she has this wonderful spirit about her, and there's me, someone who just wanted to look like D.L. Moody incarnate, okay? I mean, it's true. I like sulk around campus and just be like, look at me, big beard, woof, woof, yes. And I had this expectation that... If someone's going to like me, they're going to like me for me, and they can just deal with it. And she told me I'd be alone forever, and I thought, shoot, all hope, totally gone. Well, a few months later, I apologized for the way that I acted that night, being really frustrated, and that's how I'd meet her. And we began to talk, and eventually we began to date, 
And of course, she became my wife. And if you would have told me that the girl that you saw before class, you're going to meet and look like a total monster and doofus for, and then one day you're going to marry her, I would have been like, no, you're crazy. There is no possible way that's going to happen. And it's a hopeless situation. But it wasn't. It wasn't. See, when I think about hope, and maybe that was a bad example for you, I don't know, but when I think about hope, I think about those moments where the impossible becomes possible. And the hope that we have that we cling to in this life points us back to God saying, God, right now, whatever is going on, whatever difficulty, whatever frustration, whatever heartache, whatever pain, whatever sorrow, it ultimately is going to be okay. Maybe not now, but one day you're going to make it all okay. And that's the hope that we cling to. As a kid, I would think about eternity and I would think about what life would be like with God forever. And as a kid, you know, your, your brain can only handle so much. As an adult, our brains can only handle so much. And I'd think about this and I'd be like, okay, in eternity, is it just like empty? Is it space? Do we just, just a bunch of people like in an open room? Do we, do we just sing forever? Am I going to get bored? I, it says there's going to be like uh, streets of gold and he's preparing a mansion and rooms for us, but are, are we just going to get tired of doing the same thing? Are we going to be on bended knee the whole time? Am I just going to sing the whole time? Like, what does this look like? And these questions popped up over and over in my head and eventually my brain was like, Poof! because as a human, time constrains me down and I can't think about eternity the way that God thinks about eternity. His thoughts and his ways are higher than mine. But those were the questions that I had. And I thought about the book of Revelation. And as John was exiled on the island of Patmos, he gets this vision from Jesus. And in Revelation 21, 1 through 7, he writes this, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God." He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Right there is the hope. The hope that we have and the future consummation, culmination of all things, we have the hope that there is victory in Jesus. That at the end of all things, he is making it new. He is bringing mankind back to himself. He is bringing heaven back to earth. He is making it all new. And he's restoring all things for the purpose of his children, giving glory to him the way we were created to do, to give glory to God. N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, 
writes a wonderful uh, quote here, and it's kind of long, so bear with me, but I think it's really, really important to hear. It is the final fulfillment and richly symbolic imagery of the promise of Genesis 1 that the creation of male and female would together reflect God's image in the world. And it is the final accomplishment of God's great design to defeat and abolish death forever, which can only mean the rescue of creation from its present plight of decay, heaven and earth. It seems they're not, after all, poles apart needing to be separated forever when all the children of heaven have been rescued from this wicked earth, nor are they simply different ways of looking at the same thing, as would be implied by some kind of pantheism. No, they are different, radically different, but they are made for each other in the same way that Revelation is suggesting as male and female, and when they finally come together, they will be cause for rejoicing in the same way that a wedding is, a creational sign that God's project is going forward, that opposite poles within creation are made for union, not competition, that love and not hate have the last word in the universe, that fruitfulness and not sterility is God's will for creation. What is promised in this passage then is what Isaiah foresaw, a new heaven, a new earth replacing the old heaven and the old earth which were bound to decay. And this doesn't mean that God will wipe the slate clean and start again. If that were so, there would be no celebration, no conquest of death, no long preparation now at last complete. As the chapter develops, the bride, the wife of the lamb is described lovingly. She is the new Jerusalem promised by the prophets of the exile. And as in Romans and 1 Corinthians, the living God will dwell with and among his people, filling the city with his life and love and pouring out grace and healing in the river of life that flows from the city out to the nations. There is a sign here of the future project that awaits the redeemed in God's eventual new world. So far from sitting on clouds, playing harps as people often imagine, the redeemed people of God, that's us in this new world, will be the agents of his love going out in new ways to accomplish new creative tasks to celebrate and extend the glory of his love. We were created to give God glory and he is bringing that to fruition. He is bringing us to that place where we as followers of him for eternity will celebrate and sing and dance and love and live greater than anything we've experienced now. And that glory is the future hope that we cling to in this life. That future hope, that hope that we hold on to in the middle of everything that can take us down. For the last few weeks, uh, there's been a lot of stress in my household. We've been dealing with some issues uh, regarding the pregnancy um, that my wife is in right now. Um, And it's been really tough. But I've had to cling on to the hope that God has a plan and a purpose and that ultimately... Ultimately, whatever the outcome is, he's going to see us through it, and he's going to make all things new, and he's going to restore, and he's going to redeem, and he's going to bring new life. I have to trust that, which is really difficult. A few years ago, John Piper, um, you guys might know Pastor John Piper, he, uh, he put out this devotional series um, talking about the glory of God, and on the last day of this devotional series, he talked about the consummation. He does a really good job kind of summing up uh, some of the things that I've just talked about and uh, over the verses of Romans 8. So check it out. Welcome to this last day of our five-day devotional on the glory of God. So let's summarize where we've been and then wrap it up with something really great. We were created for His glory and should live for His glory. That is to make Him look as glorious as He really is. Day two, we have all failed to do that. We've loved 
the glory of other things, especially of ourselves, more than we've loved the glory of God, and that's called sin. We're in big trouble. Day three, God didn't leave us to ourselves and our trouble. He sent his son into the world, and the goal of that was to vindicate his glory while saving people who had trampled his glory, and that's what the cross was about. Day four, you connect with that by faith alone in Jesus Christ, and faith, according to Romans 4.20, is what glorifies God because it makes him look trustworthy, which brings us now to day five and the consummation of all things. God is going to succeed in the purpose for which he created the world. Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, the way the waters cover the sea. All injustice, everything that belittles God, that ignores God, that tramples the glory of God down will be cast out into everlasting darkness and the only thing left will be those who magnify the glory of God. But there's more. Romans 8 talks about the creation itself. Um, Romans 8, uh, 18 following goes like this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope that the whole creation might be set free from its bondage to decay, and here it comes, and inherit or receive the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation, so all the universe, all the planets, all the stars are going to receive the freedom of the glory of the children. That's us. So the, the creation is secondary. Human beings created in the image of God are primary. We are going to be glorified and brought into complete conformity to Jesus and then the creation is climactically going to be made suitable as a place for us. A new heavens and a new earth glorified for the children who are now glorious. We, according to Jesus in Matthew 13, 43, you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. C.S. Lewis said that if we weren't sanctified, we would be tempted to bow down and worship one another in heaven. But we will know our God better in those days. And so, here's my closing word. If you are trying to live for the glory of God, and very few people are excited about what you're living for, you have a hope that one day this life of yours is going to be vindicated and you will be swallowed up in a new heaven and a new earth that will give you everlasting joy and everlasting vindication. So don't grow weary in trusting Jesus and day by day being conformed to his glorious life of love. I love what he says there at the end. Don't grow weary. Don't grow weary. And that's easy for us to do in times of trouble. But that's a promise that even God makes throughout Scripture. Do not be afraid. I am with you. And that hasn't changed from back in creation all the way till now. He has promised to be with us. And that's where he's leading us. And we've all felt that longing. 
You know, that this, there's more to life than just this, whether we sit at a cubicle or we go to work or whatever it is that we do in our everyday life where we go, there's got to be more than just this. We felt it. And that longing is what points us to eternity and when he culminates and consummates all things at the very end. That's the fulfillment of that. And our souls and our spirits will be satisfied in the hope and the glory of who God is. But that's the future. So what do we do now? What do we do now between now and eternity? What do we do as we seek to follow God and live out this life? Well, I have a, a friend of mine, his name's Kyle. I've talked about him a few times in different sermons I've given. And he has a son who's going to be a year old next month, and his name is Coram. And Coram is an interesting name, a name I've not heard before. And so last year I was visiting Kyle and I was like, hey, where'd you come up with this name? And he told me that the name Coram uh, came from this Latin phrase, Coram Dio. And Coram Dio means to live in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and for the glory of God. And so as I was studying this, I just thought, wow, what an amazing principle, what an amazing idea that if we as followers of Christ between now and eternity want to truly live life in eager expectation with the hope of what's to come, we don't just sit idly by twiddling our thumbs waiting for the end to happen, but we actively live out the mission God has called us to. We want to live quorum Dio, and so we do that by looking at three things. First, we live in the presence of God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We want to live in the presence of God. We want to pursue his presence. When we put our mind and our hearts and our thoughts on what is unseen and on the eternal, we are truly pursuing the presence of God because we long to be with him. This life is great, but it's not perfect. What we ultimately long for as followers of Christ is to be with our Heavenly Father, to be with Jesus. And so to pursue his presence, we live now with a mindset on the eternal. But we also live under the authority of God. Paul writes in Ephesians, God raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We live under the authority of God, which means we have to submit to his sovereignty. We have to submit to his sovereignty. If God truly is in control, if he's put Jesus over all things, we have to submit to the sovereignty of who he is. And that's tough, right? Because if you're anything like me, I want to control as much of life, my life especially, as I can. And so like I said, for the last two weeks, life has been pretty crazy in my house. Um, dealing with a situation uh, with a pregnancy where we had sleepless nights and we didn't know what was going to happen. And by God's grace, he has laid his hand of healing and blessing on joy and the baby, and it's going to be okay. But in those two weeks, this submitting to his sovereignty was extremely difficult. 
to trust God and say, Lord, I, I, I know you're in control, but right now it feels like nothing, nothing is going the way it should. If we truly want to live life between now and eternity, quorum Dio, in the presence of God and under his authority, we pursue his presence, we submit to his sovereignty, but we also live for the glory of God. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The way that we live should also exalt his excellence. See, we want to pursue his presence, submit to his sovereignty, but we also need to exalt his excellence because God is good. And the way that we live, when people look at us, they shouldn't just see Nick, they shouldn't just see any other person, but they should see Jesus. And the way that we live, the way that we treat people, the way that we respond in situations, and even in those moments that are really tough, if our response gives glory to God, people will see it. And when people see that, they will give glory to their Father in heaven. God is giving us a future promise, a future culmination, a future consummation of all things where he is bringing himself and mankind back together, where he is bringing heaven back to earth and ultimately he's making all things new. But until then, we pursue his presence, we submit to his sovereignty and we exalt his excellence for he is a good and almighty God, amen? So, with that, as we close, I want to just leave you with this. As we wait in glorious expectation for the end of all things, the end is really the beginning. We have the eternal hope of Christ. Creation will be brought to fruition. All things will be made new. And until then, we live. Coram Dio. We want to live pursuing his presence, submitting to his sovereignty and exalting his excellence, knowing that eventually he is going to heal and restore and redeem all things. And even in the worst of the worst, in those moments where we feel like we can't handle it, God is with us and he is bringing us through for we were created to give him glory and he is gonna fulfill that in the future. And the way that we live now can give him glory too as we worship, as we sing. So let's stand for prayer and we'll respond in worship. Father God, we give you thanks. We thank you that you are a God who is good, who is wonderful, who has a purpose and a plan. And from the very beginning, you created all things and you created us to be image bearers of you, to give you glory and we messed that up. But in any situation where mankind would choose to run away or be faithless, you remain faithful. And you kept a promise saying that you would provide, you would take care, that you would fulfill. Father, and you, you did that in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. But there's a future promise that one day, not just our spiritual selves, but our physical selves will be made glorified. And as we look forward to that day, as we long for that day to be with you in this life, in our present suffering, in our present trials, and even in our present victories, we still give you thanks. And we seek to pursue you, to submit to you and exalt you with all that we are and all that we, we, we do. And so we give you thanks now for this morning and I just pray that our voices and our hearts as we lift them up and praise to you 
would just be an offering of thanks in your name.